John chapter 9, John chapter 9 this morning, and I'm going to begin reading. Let me just read, you can follow along with me, the first 11 verses, and we'll look at this great passage together in our time this morning. The Bible says, and he passed by and saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam which means sent. So he went and washed and came back, seeing the neighbors and those who had seen him before he was a beggar, before as a beggar were saying, is not the man who used to sit and beg? Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said it is other. Some said it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He answered them, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. What a beautiful narrative uh, that God has preserved for us out of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. On March 10th in 1746, the Greyhound was almost, uh, almost, Uh, at the place of sinking. The ship was uh, torn apart. The sails were ripped off. Many soldiers had died. It had been going through a a terrible storm at sea for about 11 days. One of the sailors uh, on this particular day was so exhausted from trying to get water out of the ship and pump water out of the ship that all they could do was tie him to the to the mast so he could try to keep the, the, the ship on course uh, during this time. He couldn't do it by his sheer strength. It was during this time in his life, which he later called a great, his great humiliation, that the teaching, Christian teaching of his mother came back to him. We get in those situations, almost like the prodigal son, don't we? We're at the in the pit. <laughs> we 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 began to see and understand. Some of you can think of that and have experienced that in your own lives. He was in his twenties at this time. Took place in his life. He had been at sea since he was twelve years old, sailing with his father, and later in the navy, and then later in the most uh, infamous trade of all, and that is the transatlantic slave trade. The ship itself he was on was in that sort of business. The man in question had been referred to as the great blasphemer. It has been said about him by one source that he had a reputation for profanity and coarseness and debauchery which even shocked many sailors. And that is hard uh, uh, to, to fathom, as the saying goes, to make a sailor blush. Uh, yet this moment of peril in his life turned out to be the mercy of God as he turned to him asking for deliverance. God answered that request for this 
young man in two ways. One, he physically delivered him. He lived beyond the storm and did not perish. He he lived to 82 years old, somewhere in that vicinity, but he also did it in another way. That is how we come to know this story. In fact, uh, he delivered him from his life of debauchery and his enslavement to sin. We know him as John Newton, as many of you have heard of the story and have heard of his name often by many of the writings that he has given his life autobiography. He is most famously known by a song that he wrote on a New Year's Day called, let me just quote it for you, in very puritanical fashion, which titles were not meant to be catchy in those days, as you can see, Faith's Review and Expectation. And later on, we would come to know it as Amazing Grace. Isn't it a familiar testimony why it has lasted so many years for us, this song that brings us together? The words itself is not just the testimony of a slave trader who found the grace of God to deliver him, but it's a testimony of every one of us in some way or another. It's our testimony, especially the first stanza when he speaks about amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Our text this morning is something of a living parable of John Newton's thought. Though he took it from the Old Testament and the life of David, amazed at God's goodness at David's life, who was a murderer and adulterer and all the things that he did, it is really the story of what's going on here in this, this I was blind, but now I see. As God creates for us, not restoring a man's sight, recovering something that he lost, but imparting to this guy in the text something that he never had to begin with. As you know, miracles in the Gospel of John are given to us and they're referred to as signs. They they don't dismiss the physical reality, the historical accuracy of what went on. Uh, they happen. They're true accounts. There was a man who was born blind, and this, this event is not just a parable in that sense. And, and the miracles always met a need. They're not just, just kind of random acts, as we might think. They, they met a particular need in each person's life. But John reminds us, as the New Testament does, that these signs were meant for more than that. Not only did they meet a physical need, but they pointed to something beyond that, something that you and I might not immediately see in the conversation or the narrative. They're trying to teach us something, namely, in the Gospel of John, who this Messiah is and that God is with him in power and in might and what he has come to accomplish in his redeeming work. And John picks several of these signs for us, this blind man being one of them. Just a little context here, John 9 is one long narrative, 1 through 41, and uh, you, you could almost take this in one sermon, but I am not quite that gifted, so we'll take it in two. Uh, but I cannot help but bring you to this glorious simplicity 
uh, of this man's confession in verse number 25. We'll look at it more next week. Look at it with me. As we see this true miracle which take place, a nasty confrontation going on and and this courageous confession. And he says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. Isn't that remarkable? Well, consider with me. I want us to set or want to set in front of you the situation found in verse number one, setting of the stage and all of uh, that revolves around what's going on. As we see in verse number one, we are introduced to this man, a blind man from birth. Notice he says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, the situation where he's at is in the temple area, maybe similar to the place where he healed the man that was lame a few chapters earlier. There's somewhere close to the pool of Siloam uh, where he could go and wash. And so there he was and the religious people would come in, very busy place. So if you're begging, you wouldn't go out and speculate or four corners. You would go to some place that had people, you know, where there was many people. Uh, well, there's a lot of people now, sort of. But nevertheless, they would be in Jerusalem. And not just people, but people who have a religious affection where they want to be right with God and they seem to be more generous. And so if you want some some resources and help, then... That is where you need to go, and that is where the man is found. He was blind from birth. He was a beggar. He's referred to later on as one who was begging. He is of age, which simply means he is an adult of some particular age. We don't know, somewhere above the age 12. Uh, This would have been common to find him and all of his compadres and all of the people of his ilk, if you want to call it that, Uh, here in this area and the beautiful thing of this verse in the setting is that Jesus passed by isn't that remarkable you know Jesus does not do anything randomly he's not nonchalantly going on on a way and just happens to come upon a man Jesus in every encounter that he has he's uh, the 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 blind man and the disciples and everyone else is is caught up in a divine appointment I would say that's true of you here this morning as we come together under divine appointment. Jesus passed by and not just under a stroll, but under direction of his father. Not only does he pass by, that beautiful phrase in verse number one is, he saw a man. We don't know the man's name. The Bible doesn't tell us. John doesn't reserve it for us. But God knows his name. Jesus knows his name. The reality that Jesus, Jesus saw him. Have you ever wondered what it would be to look into the eyes of Jesus as he walked this earth? To look at you in all of your misery? A true holy man and a righteous man, especially in this day when the Pharisees, who were the epitome, the the kind of top scale of what righteousness and religiousness being right with God was, and, and you're in a miserable state, would you wonder if he would look at you in the same way as the Pharisees and scribes? And Jesus saw him, but we find in the eyes of Christ, a man of compassion and a man of pity. It's the kind of setting for us. Notice, secondly, verses number two through verse number five, this sort of study case. You and I uh, oftentimes, or many of us, I will say that, oftentimes find ourselves curious about how things went wrong. 
How did we get where we're at? In fact, Carl Truman has a great little book on the progress of thinking in our day concerning uh, transgenderism and gender confusion. It's referred to as a strange new world, or the title is A Strange New World. Highly recommend it to you if you want to see how we progress through that. It's not a fun read. It is informative. And nevertheless, it brings us with this kind of conversation. I, I think part of, the, part of the reason is it's much easier to talk about what went wrong than to talk about here we are and what we got to do. Would you agree with that? We're wrapped up in conversations. Let's make a study case of this. Then what are we here to do? It's easier to work, work those things that way. Theological debates are the same thing. We can argue and debate until Jesus returns and be convinced this is the hard work that needs to be done. Now, I want to say something according to that statement so you don't take me wrong and go out here and let's burn all of our systematic theology books. You probably don't even have one. Some of you may not even have one. So you can burn mine, I guess, whatever. Questions need to be asked and questions need to be answered. You understand that? Can we agree with that? Give me a head nod and it's hot, I get that humid and I'm drinking the air with you. More so because I have a tie on. Questions need to be asked and questions need to be answered. There are times for that and we want precision when it comes to articulating what it is we believe, what it is we confess. But Jesus is going to tell these curious disciples that there is also a time for action. And don't miss and confuse that. Now, what are the disciples asking here in this case study? They said, well, our theological understanding of the day is cause and effect. What you sow, you reap sort of mentality. And it's true, the Bible does teach that. But the outworking of misery in your life and the difficulty that you face and and dark providence is is evidently uh, in direct proportion to some specific sin either you committed or someone committed that is in some kind related to you. So if you have some defect or deformity or deal with sickness or poverty or any of those things, the theological question, the query is, who sinned that this thing happened in your life? That is a very popular kind of theology in our day. Now, we don't mark it that way, do we? We kind of, because we want to be upbeat and positive. So we say, well, naturally, if you're right with God and God is right with you, then you will be healthy and blessed and things will be well. Things will be going well in your life. If you're suffering and miserable and depressed and, and bad things are going on or have disease or sickness or disabilities, then evidently, you know, either have enough faith or you've just not lined yourself up in the will of God in a perfect direction. And that is blasphemous. And that is not biblical. And that is the very theology which the disciples themselves needed correcting. And honestly, friends, when we get into trouble in our own lives, when we deal with difficulty in our own lives, isn't that the theology we need to throw out the window because that's the first thing that comes to our mind? And if it isn't ours, it's the theology we tend to set on someone else as we see poor and bad in their life. Well, you know, them sin, this sin or that sin or because you were wrong and 
all of this stuff. Now, that's not to say that there's not direct consequences of our sinful actions. Amen? I think the lame man earlier on at Jesus Hill, when he says, go and sin no more, I think his sickness and his, the, his situation was because of sin in his life. But we must be careful and slow to speak when it comes to matters like this. The disciple says, well, who sinned? He give, they give two options. This man. Doesn't that sound absurd? Did you read verse number one? Let me read it again. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Who sinned? The newborn baby? As he was being born, I guess. I don't know how that worked out. Didn't cry right when they spanked him? I mean, what, what in the world are you thinking? But you know... Some Pharisees and rabbis had taught because of Genesis 25, 22 through 23, that wrestling of Jacob and Esau, two babies are at war within you, that Esau was sinning in the womb and therefore it is possible to sin in the womb and the rest of your life bearing the consequences of that sin. That's ridiculous. Well, as we say, and that wasn't always the popular thinking but it was the thinking nevertheless because the disciples brought it up did this man sin maybe in the womb if it's possible for him to be born blind or did his parents there are consequences and things that can be brought about due to disregard and a reckless life while one is pregnant we know that. I was in a hospital repairing a wing in the, the area where they kept the babies and one of the babies constantly crying and the nurse just in frustration said, we can always tell when there's one, uh, a, a baby born on some kind of addiction of some sort and it was, rip your heart out. There, there are those consequences. We understand that. He's not necessarily speaking about that in the physical realm. He's not bringing out his medical log and saying what's going on here. He's asking a a theological question. Is God judging this man? Is he born blind? Is the condemnation or the wrath of God falling on this man by giving him blindness because his parents did something against God? So they turn out to have the theology of Job's friends, don't they? Whose fault is it? Job must be yours. There is a sense in which all sickness and all disease, all disabilities and all infirmities and all sorrow in our life is a direct result of sin. You cannot erase Genesis 3 from the human experience. And do you understand that? Even in a world where the gospel is redeeming thousands, maybe even millions by the day. Who knows? I'd be optimistic. There's still that result of the fall, isn't there? There's a result that Adam sinned and submerged the world into sin. And that curse was borne out, not just on Adam and Eve, but on their descendants and the human race. The only time will ever be removed from the consequences of sin in our lives, even, even in the redeemed's lives in heaven. That's what makes heaven, one of the things that makes heaven so sweet. Amen? There will be no more curse because there will be no more sin. But we are not there. 
And so we are taught to be slow as we speak about these things, drawing specific conclusions. And what does Jesus in his kindness do? Well, he redirects their attention. Notice verse number three. Jesus answered, it was not this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Isn't that remarkable? What do you mean? My whole theological framework is around this man's blindness and his miserable state because he or his parents sinned. And you're telling me that God might be glorified in this. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying, isn't it? God, all of this being brought about that God would be glorified. The work of God would be glorified in this man. 30 years of blindness endured that the work of God might be glorified in this man. God would be glorified. His glory would be put on display here specifically in the healing of this man. <clears throat> that he give us that statement, I once was blind, but, but now I see. Giving him eyes to testify, eyes to see, and a mind to testify before the Pharisees of Jesus Christ. But you know that's not the only way God glorifies himself in situations like this and in people's lives. To the Corinthian church, Paul writes Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now, this, that word this, means that thorn in the flesh, which was a. a Something given to him, he calls it a buffet or a messenger of Satan, this thing which reminded him continually of his weakness and of his limitations. And he prayed and asked God to to deliver him from this. He wanted to be more effective. He wanted to be rid of this, naturally so. And notice how God answers, but he said to me, God answering his prayer, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. The power of God displaying in the healing and restoring of a blind man. And also the power of God and the grace of God displayed in sustaining and preserving Paul. In both cases, the glory of God on display. The glory of God on display. Maybe you have those things in your life where you need to be reminded of that. God can be glorified in our weakness. And often is in the perseverance and the grace he gives to us in our weakness as he is in our quick, immediate deliverance. In both ways, he is sovereign and he is good and merciful. <clears throat> now, this particular man, as we said, this glory of God and this work of God is brought about in the transforming, restoring, rescuing, intentional work that testifies about Jesus. That's what this book is about. John is about. In fact, that's what our whole Bible is about, testifying to Jesus. But I want you to notice this beautiful phrase that he says here in verse number 4 and 5. He says that the works of God might be displayed in him. Verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. 
So far, the disciples have placed themselves outside of the context, sort of a let's observe and kick around the can a little bit, kick around the idea of what's going on and have a theological debate. And Jesus is bringing them back into the reality that he has called them to share in his work. And then what you read there, we, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. They're meant to share in his labor. He doesn't need them, of course, but he does invite them to share in his labor. You might recall when the Samaritan woman had went and that great revival in Samaria broke out and all the people from town came. He told his disciples, pray for laborers. The harvest is is great. Pray for workers in the field. And he reminds them that you've invited in, you've been brought in to share in someone else's work to reap what other people have sown was the disciples who distributed the food to the 5,000 plus people. They joined him in his ministry. They were to be busy in the work that he's called them while it is day. There's two things concerning that statement. While it is day, it speaks of a night coming when no one can work, not work. And it's speaking of Jesus' death, I think specifically. There's a time coming when the disciples will flee from him. And fear. Their faith will be tested at the greatest point that it could ever be tested. There is a time when Jesus will go through the greatest agony and darkness that anyone has ever went through. There is a time coming. There's only months leading up to this event that's going to take place. But there's also, uh, there's also an application here. There is a time where you and I will not be able to work. There's a time of our own death. You know that. Your life is just but a vapor. How easy it is to say tomorrow I'll serve the Lord. Tomorrow I'll give. Tomorrow I'll go. Tomorrow I'll do this. When we miss that golden opportunity of now and today. We occupy ourselves in this life as if we're going to live forever. And God has given us a short season to be busy about his work. To partner with him in what he's doing We should be about our Father's business as our Savior was. Thirdly, I want us to notice, we saw the the case study, we saw the situation. Thirdly, I want us to notice the solution and how simple it is. Verse number 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud. Don't you have a little comedy with that? Some of you mothers tell your children... Quit spitting. You know, why are you spitting all the time? I don't know how natural. I, I still like to do that off a bridge. You got water there? You just want to. <laughs> At least there's no people. I'm not on a crosswalk. I mean, you know, come on. Uh, there's a um, amusement park in uh, Gatlinburg um, called Dollywood. I know some of you may have been there. I'm not promoting them, so you're not getting a recommendation either way or the other. They have good funnel cakes if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, but they have some of the largest goldfish I've ever seen. And you could spit in that little thing, and they just come, and it's like they... And, and you're just laughing because you're like, I tricked you, didn't I? You thought it was food, and all it was was... Who's smarter? You know, I, how cool is that? I'm not saying I've ever done that when I was 12 or 20 or... How would the glory of God be manifest in this man that was born blind? 
you know, Jesus could have healed this man in many ways. He could have just said, see, the man could have saw. Immediately, his eyes opened up. He could have, he could have done all sorts of things. And he who is the sovereign Lord is also sovereign in the means in which he chooses to heal. And so here he is spitting on the ground and making a little mud with saliva. And he's doing something that you and I would think unthinkable. But if you notice, it sort of brings us back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? When God took from the ground clay and formed it together and, and fashioned that clay into the form of a man and he created a living being as he breathed in him the breath of life. God is not recovering something this man's lost. He is transforming. He is enabling. He is giving to this man what he never possessed. And that is a new eyes. Eyes that work and see that's responsive to light and, and is able to take all of those reflection, reflections and images and, and translate those into the mind so that he can determine and decipher and understand the world around him. He spits and makes mud and he sends him to a river or to the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Hold that thought. We'll come back to that in a moment. But I want you to notice the simplicity of this story as it, as it fleshes out as he came back seeing. Now, some of you who are true, well, I don't know, some of you true grew up in churches where there is no dancing and, and there is no, there's a lot of no's. Maybe hard for you to think anybody in a religious setting would do anything that was out of the ordinary or out of the decor of being uh, what, what you might call um, self-control and contained, right? Is that a nice way of putting that? Everyone with me? Amen? See, I, I'm, you're going to get there. It'll be a whole new church at the end of the day. And so we read this story in our Western mind without any soul to us, you know, so to speak. And we read this in our culture and setting. We think, yeah, the man washed and he, and he walks, just kind of walks back nonchalantly. And he says, well, here I am. Do you think that's the way it happened? I watched a video, several videos of small children receiving glasses. Some of you may have seen those before. For the very first time, they look at their parents, and it's just like amazement. Their eyes get as big as half dollars, and they're just, you know, some of them cry, and it's probably notable, and, and there's other stuff going on. It's such emotional effect. The kids that can see, not very well and blurry, but they, they're given that correction to where they see their parents for the very first time. It's very emotional not being an emotional person uh, by nature, uh, it was still very moving. Some of you might remember what it was to see the, something for the very first time. Maybe your wife, you know, the very first time. I can remember. I'm not getting into that this morning. Or the ocean, something amazing. What, what just drinking it in. How amazing. Or the desert. I was in Mojave Desert twice and it was amazing when I first got there and then I was wanting to leave every day after. <laughs> but could you imagine someone who has never seen a thing? 
never had processed in their mind, never had the correct image of what a door looked like or what their friend looked like or what color a melon looked like or, or, or put all the pieces together. And in here, in his, his age, whether it's 20, 30, 40 years, he's given the chance to see. Do you think he just nonchalantly went back and said, hey, by the way, guys, I can see now. I think they had to tie him down. Rejoicing in this great gift of being able to see. No small uh, stir going on in the town here as we see this. Even so much that the neighbors, as he came back without his cane and his seeing eye dog, nobody's leading him by the arm. And he comes back and the neighbors are like, this got to be somebody else. Doesn't that look like Bob? That ain't Bob. No, it's, that's Bob. Doesn't it look like Bob? No, it's got to be somebody else because Bob is blind as a bat. Bob can't see. If he was walking that way, he'd fall, he'd fall and kill himself. That's not Bob. And he's over there jumping up and down. No, it's me. It's me. You got it right. It's me. What a glorious scene this must have been. <laughs> what a, a humorous scene as well. Notice how he, how this comes about, verse number 9 and 10. Uh, surely it must be someone else. It's he, and he says, no, I'm the man, verse number 9. So they, so they said, if, if you're the man, how, how, how do you see now? How your eyes open? How's this come about? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. He's never read a Hebrew Bible. Never read one jot or tittle, as someone has said. He probably doesn't know the dual nature of Christ and the mystery of the Incarnation. Could not unravel the mystery of the Trinity. And many other theological conundrums that we could present before him. But he did know this. He met a man named Jesus and now he can see. And dear friends, that's the simplest uh, testimony that we could ever have. Our stories are complex in some ways. God, providence leading us along and the way he worked things out in our life, uh, there's a complexity to it, but there's also a simplicity to it. And that is encountering Jesus has made a difference. He has opened my eyes and now... I can see. Now I want to close with the significance of this story with you. This narrative again, we'll look at it again next week. And I have four just little bullet points and um, for you to jot down as we consider the significance. Why did John set this narrative where he set it? He could have given us any number of miracles. He could have told us any number of stories that uh, several of them recorded in other gospels. We could have borrowed one, copied, pasted, and, and put it in there. Why this story in this place? Well, one, it serves as a living parable of what Jesus has been teaching in John chapter number 8. It is a reprieve from that long section of teaching to where Jesus is teaching them, I am the light of the world, and all that went on at, during the temple feast Verse number 12 and really the whole chapter of chapter number 8 
It is reminding us that light has come into the world to remove darkness. Not only is it a living parable of that passage, and it's set here specifically for that reason, it's a fitting metaphor to us in our spiritual condition. Again, not to belabor the point beyond what it needs to be said, but God not recovering or restoring our sight of him. In some ways, there is a a correcting in, in a natural sense, but what he is imparting to us is something we never had. That is spiritual eyes to see him and to know him and to follow him. There is great benefit and joy, even as we talked about last week on Father's Day and God being our Heavenly Father and teaching our children the truths and precepts of God. Better you teach them than the world teach them. And it is a great benefit not only to them, but to your own conscience by fulfilling your duty as a parent. Would you agree with that? But the reality in in many places in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and many other places, God is not truly seen. God is not truly beheld without that redeeming work of Jesus Christ. That is what we lead them to. That is what we give to them. That's what we train them up in. In fact, God says this is his business of doing in 2 Corinthians Four, six, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Again, that light coming in, that ability to see and receive, receive that input, that sight, that information. We see that spiritual transplant language many places in the bible in the old testament the new covenant uses that language in the realm of the heart doesn't it at least two maybe three places in the old testament jeremiah and ezekiel it tells us that god takes out your non-working heart it's stone not that you're dead in the sense of you're physically dead but it's stone towards god stiff neck the Bible uses that language of rebellion against God. And God, through this work, gives us a, a real, live heart of flesh that beats and works and functions as it ought to function. How should it function? Well, when he writes his laws upon that new heart of flesh, it functions in obedience and walking in his ways. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration taking out that heart of stone and giving us that heart of flesh. Thirdly, this setting brings us back to that glorious little remark that we are joined, church, in this glorious work of God in the world. Not that he needs us. And there is a work that he himself can only do. But he has invited us to partner in this redeeming work. And I would say, And one way we do that is by praying. Not a person in here, not one person that's put their faith in Christ in here this morning is not here as a result and in this situation as a result of an answer to someone else's prayer. Do you believe that? Is it really futile to pray for your loved ones? God opened their eyes. 
God they don't see. They're blind. They keep going their own way. They keep hitting their head against the wall. God help them. I think one of the most effective things we can do besides living a consistent Christian witness in front of them and sharing Christ to them is to pray for them to one who is able to open the eyes of the blind. Now you might say you don't know how bad they are. You don't know how big into conspiracy theories and all this other stuff they've gone into. And I'm just going to remind you blindness has no cure. It is, it is uncurable. There's nothing they can do about it. We have cured a lot of things and helped a lot of things, but my text tells me this morning that this man who was blind now sees. We may say sin is incurable, but many, and you're here this morning as a testimony to that, right? Many have found forgiveness and many have found life and restoration. Many have found, uh, found that that scripture being a new creation in Christ Jesus. Many who have been said a blasphemer have been like John Newton, now Pastor John the songwriter. Could you imagine him on the ship a week before that storm hit and somebody said, you know what, you're going to write a song, Amazing Grace. It would probably cussed you right off the ship. You, he'd have died a week early from embarrassment. But the prayers of his mom and the investment in that seven years in that young man's life, songs of Isaac Watts, how they formed and they came when he desperately needed. And God redeemed him. And how many other testimonies we find in our Bible from a persecutor of the Christians to an apostle, from a, a tax collector to, to a, a, an apostle and a writer of the gospel of Matthew. Isn't God amazing, church? How wonderful it is. Many have found turning to him aid. And in turning to him, they found he's already supplied the aid in the very turning. And if you're here this morning and all this is foreign to you. And you sit here and we sing and we rejoice and weep. Those who weep and, and, and take joy in the work of our Savior. And you think this is all foreign to me. Don't you see There's that in itself should tell you something? To be concerned about where you are and what's going on and how you perceive the world around you. Don't rest. See somebody. Talk to somebody. Get questions answered. But most of all, turn to Christ. It is in Him where sight is recovered. Not only in praying, but but in serving and giving the gospel and telling and sharing the joy that we have found in Jesus Christ, church. We are called, joined in to this glorious work of watching Christ's glory on display and changing people's lives. But I would say, fourthly, what a joy that in all the bigness of the Bible and all the debates we could have, which are necessary at times and needful, I'm not dismissing that. There's a place and time for that. You and I can come back to the simplicity of the statement of this poor man. I was blind and now I see. And in this setting, it should lift your hearts this morning. If you know any of the grace of God and the mercy of Christ, it should lift your hearts to worship 
You may say, well, I like more practical applications. There is nothing more practical in your life than worshiping your creator and magnifying God. That is the very thing that will help you tomorrow on the phone or with a neighbor or with a friend. I was blind, but now I see. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time together this morning. What a great narrative. What a great reminder of your saving grace. Oh, we could not even imagine what you would do in our lives. And yet here we stand almost on the sidelines, just amazed at your grace. And sure, there's many areas in which your light and your word and your spirit illuminates to, to, bring, to bring to light that need to be changed. But oh, the joy also of rejoicing in the change you have already made, even if it isn't in the simplicity of our desires to, to know you more. And I pray that is each of our earnest desire. And Father, knowing you, I pray that we would rejoice in that knowledge, grow, give us eyes to see further and deeper and higher and broader into your love, which you have given to us in Christ Jesus. And it is in his name that I pray these things. Amen.